Oh, you're listening to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where science meets ancient wisdom, 3ABR 87.6 FM. And I'm your host, Katerina Morrison. We are so lucky tonight to have a world-renowned fungi expert. We've got Dr. Alison Plow, who is an ecologist, environmental photographer, and honorary fellow at the Australian National University. Now, her research spans both in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere, where she's actively involved in conservation, conducting over 400 fungus forays over the last two decades. Now, um, the 5,300-year-old Iceman found in 1991 between Australia and Italy, they wore a well-preserved amulet of dried fresh mushrooms around his neck. So it seems that even though the Stone Age Earth's inhabitants recognised the power of the fungus growing in the darkness, so even ancient Chinese herbalists considered the reishi mushroom the most beneficial of all medicines, and the emperors of Japan believed the reishi granted them immortality. Now, I've got um, Alison on the phone here tonight. Uh, to uh, tell us a lot more about the fungi world. How are you going, Alison? I'm going very well, thank you, Kat. How are you? Fantastic. Now, you've been involved with the Polo Bay community for over a decade and you've got an extensive knowledge, particularly um, of the Otway Forest and the astonishing diversity that we have here um, of the fungi. I do. And I, look, I've had the most wonderful, or over a decade actually, closer to 20 years of, of working with the most fantastic people in the community and it's been so exciting for me to see people recognise that the forests are not just places of plants and animals, but the fungi plays such a vital and often interconnective role in supporting the health and resilience of those forests. So I've been really inspired by the people I've met and the way their thinking has changed to embrace all of the biodiversity in those forests. So it's been an absolutely wonderful time for me. Yeah, well, I've been on one of those fungus forays and it's absolutely been just amazing what I've actually learnt. And I'm so oh, terrific. I've got to tell you at the moment, I'm so excited. The first Amanita came out on our property too, right underneath oh, that pine. But it's um, heading towards the Blackwood, like you said it would be. <laughs> right okay. towards the Blackwoods, yeah. Right. Look, I, I mean, despite the incredible turmoil and the, the harrowing and unforeseen scenarios we've got at the moment with COVID, I, I, I do think it's also a time of incredible possibility and opportunity. And I, I have to believe that because there's so much, you know, terrible, not to negate or overlook the awful and unimaginable trauma many people are experiencing. I think in, in some ways, you know, we can take some solace in the, the reports of fish returning to rivers and dolphins reclaiming marinas Amazing. and wildlife lifting, all of this. But I also think the forest, I mean, the forest is not going away and it's probably heaving a huge sigh of relief, actually, <laughs> that there's less, you know, less particulate matter in the year, yeah. in the air. And I feel like... This season, we could be in for a bumper fungus season in the forest. Well, it is fungus season, but before that, let's find out a little bit about you at the moment. So, how did you get onto that pathway of being such an expert, fungi expert? Oh, I'm not sure that I am. <laughs> but look, certainly, I mean, to me, it's, it's all interesting. Everything in nature is interesting. And I guess as a small child walking around or crawling around in the forest, everything about it was fascinating, Cat. Like whether it was the, you know, the beetles clambering through the leaf litter or whether it was the sun dews glistening in the morning light or, or whatever it was, the orchids unfurling, it was all fascinating. And it wasn't just the aesthetics of these bizarre and beautiful things. It was also curiosity about what they were doing. But the fungi held another kind of allure and I think it was because they're, they're so ephemeral, like you see them there you come back to look at the next morning and it's gone it's like well, you know, how did I make sense of that? And I think that strange quality of being so ephemeral so short-lived and also the, the, the design or the, the, the strange forms of how they manifest was so kooky, I just wanted to try and understand them. So I think initially what was an aesthetic interest that they captured my you know, my attention and my imagination then became more of a scientific curiosity, wanting to understand what are they doing? I mean, surely they're not just random decorations out no. there in the forest. You know? Surely they're doing something more than that. So I guess that sort of set me on the path. But I, I guess I don't consider myself a fungus expert in any way, but more so an enthusiast of everything in the forest and how they interact together. Recently, there has been some real talk about plants talking to one another using the internet. Um, of the fungi um, and that tree in your garden is probably hooked up to a bush several metres away thanks to the mycelia or the fungi um, they don't actually contain chlorophyll do they but by linking no, you're right. yeah but linking to the fungal network they can help um, out their neighbours by sharing nutrients and information or they can sabotage unwelcome plants you'll know a lot more about this than I do you're right. Look, it's become a really popular concept, and a lot of it was popularised by a book by a German forester called Peter Wolleben. 
in the Secret Life of Trees, I think it's called, and yeah. his, his uh, book taps into the research of a British Columbian scientist called Suzanne Simard, and she looks at exactly what you're talking about, at these interconnective networks of communication and sharing of resources between plant, plants and fungi, and hence why we often call it the wood wide web or the underground <laughs> internet, which is a, a great metaphor, but you're right, and fungi, you're right, they don't, they don't have chlorophyll, they don't photosynthesize, so... So how do they, they eat? Well, just like us. <laughs> We're not that different. So the plants utilise the sun. They're called autotrophs. They have chlorophyll. They get the energy directly from the sun. But fungi are just like animals in that they use digestion. We do it internally. So when we want to eat something, we put it into our mouths, into our digestive tract. Enzymes break down that food and we extract what we need. Fungi do exactly the same thing, but they do it externally. So they basically have this great array of enzymes that they secrete directly into the substrate. So they basically sit in their food and slobber and they absorb the nutrients that they want. So it's the same sort of, exactly the same way that we get nutrition, but they do it externally rather than internally. But then they form these networks in plants because they get more energy from the sugars that the plants, that plants get sugars from the sun and they transport those to the fungi by these networks. And the fungi return the favour by extending out the root system of the plant, allowing that plant to access more nutrients, more water, and they also release things like chemicals and into the soil to actually ward off pathogenic things that can damage the, the, the tree's roots. So we call this a mutually beneficial <laughs> two-way symbiosis. It's a lovely, I guess, marriage or alliance between two different groups of organisms, and we now know that this is what holds forests together. It's this relationship. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, extensive network of, of connectivity that actually is responsible for the health and architecture and resilience of forests. Now, 90% of land plants are mutually um, a, a benefit to, from relationships with fungi, aren't they? But um, there are, sometimes there can be some sub sabotage um, to unwelcome plants by spreading toxic chemicals through that particular network, isn't there? There's still some research going on exactly how these mechanisms work and... <laughs> We, we still don't fully understand this, but certainly it's probably more so with invertebrates and other organisms or pathogenic species, disease-causing species that can threaten that tree. We certainly know that the fungus has this great arsenal of different chemicals, things like neurotoxins, where they can poison things mm. like nematode worms that can damage the plant. In terms of other plants, oh, I, I'm not, yeah, I don't know enough about whether that to really comment on that, but certainly we know they do have this huge array of chemicals that they use for all sorts of different reasons, both in defence and to assist the plant get the nutrients that it needs. Well, that's amazing because fungal networks also boost the, the host plant's immune systems as well. It's something to Absolutely. really know at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> we indeed. need to know with this uh, virus hanging around. That's so, right, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's many uh, fungus. Now, going through a walk with you through Fungus Foray, um, I thought many fungi were edible, but I was, I was actually taken back to know that there's only um, a small amount that I could actually um, ingest without well, harming me. It depends if you're a Potteroo or a Wallaby. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we certainly know that a huge range, about at least a good 40 different species of mammals, from Wallabies to Potteroos to Ascogales to Betongs to Bilbies, they all utilise fungi. And at this time of year, it can actually be up to about 90% of their diet. So we certainly know other mammals do. There's probably a great range of fungi that are available to humans as well. It's just that in Australia, our knowledge about edibility is a long way behind that of, say, our European counterparts, our continental European friends. They've been, have had much stronger traditions of collecting fungi and they know about a much larger suite of different fungi they can eat compared to what we know in Australia, although certainly we do have Indigenous knowledge as well. But I think there's a big difference between edibility and palatability. So there's probably a lot of mushrooms that are edible if you had to <laughs> eat them, but there's probably far fewer that are actually palatable that you can eat and actually want to eat them. So that, that, I think that's the big difference. Like many you probably could eat if you really had to if you were stuck out there in the forest, but the ones that are palatable, that's a much smaller selection certainly. Now you've been doing mycology for quite a while. You've also got a book coming out um, on edibility. Yeah. Can you talk so, us through? Yeah. Certainly. So that one actually goes to. I'm so excited about this one. <laughs> oh, good. So I'm writing that one with my terrific colleague Tom Bay. He's the senior mycologist at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, and he's also the honorary fellow to the 
Poison Information Centre. So he's the poor bugger who gets called up in the middle of the night when someone's picked the wrong mushrooms oh, and wow. decided to eat them. So he brings wonderful toxicological knowledge to the book as well as his extensive experience in mycology. So we've been working together for about five years on this and we're taking a little bit of a different approach. So rather than doing a field guide where there's 500 species or 100 species or you know oodles of different species, we just concentrate on a dozen edible species Fantastic. that are easy to recognise, that are you, you're very unlikely to mix them up, but we also talk about their toxic lookalike species as well. So we, we talk about other species as well as that dozen, but we focus on saying just learn one mushroom at a time, learn it in all its permutations yes. and combinations and get to know it really well. And then once you've got that one down, then do a second one. Because over all the years of working both in Australia and Europe, I've noticed that very few people eat more than about three or four species. You know, it's not like vegetables where we might eat dozens of different vegetables. Very few people eat, you know, a dozen different types of mushrooms. And that's what we thought. Let's focus our efforts on a few mushrooms. And rather than learning many, many mushrooms superficially, just learn a dozen really well and their two or three dozen toxic lookalikes. So, so you know, the number's creeping up here. And that way you, you'll never end up being a statistic. And we sort of think it's better to take a bit of a slow mushrooming approach where you learn things thoroughly and not just superficially. So it's a, it's a different concept to other field guides that exist, but we're hoping it'll prevent Tom getting those late-night calls about poisonings. <laughs> Fantastic. I can't wait to get my hands on one. Look, experts say that there's more than a million species of fungi. Is that right? And we've only discovered about 5%. Yeah, look, we think true? That, I mean, it could be even more than a million. I think the numbers are even higher than I think they're getting up to like 1.5 million. And I think in Australia, I think the numbers increased a bit now. We think we might be up to something like 30 or 40% that we've named here. But with all the ways we, like once upon a time, we described fungi by looking at the mushroom and describing its, its morphology or form, and then we gave it a name. But these days, it's all done with molecular, you know, with DNA sequencing. It's all done at wow. a molecular level. And they're suddenly going, wow, you know, one teaspoon of soil contains the spores of dozens of different species so the rate of knowledge of how how many fungi we have is just increasing exponentially so the knowledge is growing at an amazing rate and whether we actually you know can name them all before we start to lose them is another question altogether just amazing so contrary to popular belief too mushrooms are actually highly nutritious and they supply protein amino acids and b vitamins and copper magnesium vitamin c potassium phosphorus folate selen and and iron and they're among the few food sources rich in trace mineral uh, germanium i think that's where they actually get their immune stimulation um promotion effects from um they thought to promote the efficient use of oxygen in the body and to prevent against damage from free radicals um and and you know they they come in handy definitely at this this moment in time. Um, so certainly, probably, I think probably the people who know the most about the nutritional or medicinal benefits of fungi probably the Chinese because they've actually probably know they've been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine, but also here in Australia we know. Australian Aboriginal people, I mean, possibly they could have been using them for Most who knows, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years. So I think we also have tremendous knowledge about those both nutritional and medicinal benefits of fungi here in Australia as well. It's just that unfortunately most of that knowledge hasn't been recorded in, in a way that is accessible to most European Australians. So it's a terrible shame that we don't know about the, the medicinal value of our Australian fungi. But certainly... Uh, the mushroom industry promotes as fungi as having tremendous nutritional value, as you just said. I think sometimes it can also be a little bit exaggerated, but I, okay. I do think, yeah. I always say that certainly, I mean, mushrooms are known, as you said, to have all those things and they have, you know, B12 and things like this and also minerals such as iron and copper and selenium and potassium and phosphorus that are so important to bodily functions such as red blood cell production. But I think, I always say, I think the best health benefit from fungi is the walk in the forest when you're looking for them. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think particularly now in this, you know, terrible situation we're all in, I think, you know, when we're all feeling, you know, a bit confronted being locked down, I think the wonderful thing is we can still go for that walk in the forest and the, the mental and physical health benefits of that are just absolutely tremendous, as we all intuitively know. Now, you've talked lately about dirt matters and uh, what mushrooms or the fungi can actually do to rejuvenate our soils. Yes, certainly. And I think if we look in Australia at our traditional farming methods, a lot of those we've learnt from our European counterparts and a lot of the traditional farming is actually done terrible 
destruction to the soil. So a, a lot of fungi that provide that amazing network that you talked about earlier of that mycelium that stretches out and actually puts scaffolds of, of these great wefts of mycelium in the soil, holds the soil particles apart, allows it to be aerated, allows water to very gently trickle down through that network down to the deeper horizons of the soil. A lot of that framework has been lost from industrial agricultural soils because we basically, because we, we disrupt it through things like tilling and compaction through the use of heavy machinery or through the excessive use of chemicals and nutrients or fire. All those things have destroyed that mycelial network. So there's no architecture or framework there in the soil. And instead, those plants don't have those fungal partners. Instead, we have to irrigate and we have to provide nitrates, phosphates and potassium, NPK, to supplement the work yeah. the fungi was doing. Yeah. But fortunately, through the, the farmers I've been working with the last few years, what's so exciting, Kat, is things are changing. And farmers mm. are recognising this. They're recognising that they're paying a fortune for their fertiliser, for their irrigation, that their soils, soils are blowing away because they don't have any... They're not soils, they're dirt, basically. There's no biological component it's just a mineral component and as soon as we get a you know some wild weather all that topsoil blows away as we see in the dust walls that rage across the country but many farmers are saying how can i get the fungi back how can i get this architecture back in my soils so i get so excited working with these farmers who are doing all sorts of wonderful things like not tilling and and like you know not over irrigating and not using heavy machinery to, but to compresses and compacts the mycelium so i think we're at a really interesting transition time in the way we think about agriculture and how we grow plants and the role of fungi in that it's really synonymous too like there's so many metaphors that, that are synonymous with um, the microbiome in the gut as well absolutely i mean there's all these direct parallels and you know, we talk about human health, but you talk about forest health, and it's all the same sort of thing. It's amazing, like isn't a it? Lot of, yeah, yeah, it really is. And sometimes when I listen to nutritionists or doctors talk, I think these metaphors apply exactly to the natural world and things that, you know, keeping diversity and all those sorts of things are very, very similar. And I think if we look after our bodies and look after our forests in the same way, we maintain all that biota and that diversity of biota that actually is so important to those symbioses. I think... That's the kind of the key. Like we know now that humans, you know, we're not isolated organisms. We're actually a collective organism of all sorts of bacteria and viruses and fungi and all sorts of yeast and other things as well. And that we're not just a sole organism, that we rely on all these organisms to do things to help us function. I'm really excited about this time of year. I know that uh, Amanita just came up the other day. So obviously there'll be a lot more popping up. So I'm just curious, while I sit there and, and watch that earth um, pop up, how they actually reproduce? Are they do they reproduce sexually or asexually? You're going to take me down into the dye depths yeah. of fungal yeah. sex, aren't you, Kat? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the answer is both. So, fungi they're, they're complex organisms and they're very different to animals and plants in terms of the way they reproduce, but also just also in the ways we think about them. I mean, this is what to me is so fascinating about fungi is that we can't just just shove them in a box and think of them as, as being like plants or being like animals. They're very, very different organisms. And we know that the basic reproductive unit of a fungus is a thing called a spore. So this is a, a microscopic... Mm. Uh, it's like the equivalent of seeds in plants, and yet they are different to seeds in, in some ways as well because they don't carry a food supply like a seed does. But the spore is the basic reproductive unit and I'm sure you've probably seen a puffball puff out at spores or those <laughs> underneath there. We all yeah, we've seen them. But I think that the spores are probably almost a secondary reproductive strategy because that mycelium, that network you mentioned earlier, that's the growing, feeding, living part of a fungus. And that can live technically. No one comes and digs it up or squashes it or does something nasty to it. That can live indefinitely. It's got no lifespan and that can just keep on so long as we don't break it or crush it or burn it or do something to it, that can go on indefinitely so long as it's got enough food there in the soil, enough organic matter. And then the spores are almost like a secondary backup strategy. If it gets worried that it's being threatened, it pops up its mushroom and, and the it's spores amazing. are released and then those, yeah. But what I, the part I really like about fungi is that 
you know, this notion of male and female that we talk about with plants and animals, we can define something as being male or female. Well, fungi don't kind of subscribe to something as simplistic as that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, forget LGBTI. Like, seriously, fungi, some fungi can have up to 22,000 sexes. So I think it's... uh, And most of them are compatible with each other. And so there's this whole other way... So they're compatible with each other. Yeah. We've got so so much to learn, haven't we? Yeah, we use these very limited binaries and dichotomies mm, of thinking say, about the world yeah. and, and fungi going, no, we're much more interesting than that. <laughs> We've got so much to learn yeah, right in front of our yeah. eyes. Now, you've made us so aware of the fungi in the Otways. You're just amazing. One of my favourite, the bioluminescence that come out, the beautiful glow. Oh, they're great. And they're out of the moment in the Otways. They're there. You're talking about the ghost fungus, Omphalotus nidiformis. Is that the one you're thinking, the big one that glows with this kind of kooky green? Is that what you're thinking of? There's a couple of bioluminescent species. There's another little one called Little Blue Lights, which is a mycena or a bonnet fungus. It's only the size of your little fingernail, but there's these big green glowing uh, ghost fungi that you'll find around the bases of often eucalypt trees. Have you seen these out in the forest? Oh, are you still there? I think I might have lost you, Katie. You're still there? You there? Yep, got Sorry, you. I don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. Um, at Nate's there? Rest, when we went for uh, the foray walk. Ah, terrific. Yeah. Aren't they? yeah, and did you go back there at night to see them? Yes, definitely. <laughs> They're amazing, aren't they? They're they, just they absolutely, absolutely amazing. They're so um, intriguing and enchanting, and they have this compound that has a wonderful name. It's called luciferase, <laughs> and um, it basically causes it to bioluminesce and produce that curious green glow and people often say you know what why do they do that like what's the point what's the advantage or why would a fungus glow in the dark like sort of seems like an interesting thing to do but there must be some reason surely and for a long time we thought it was to do with trying to attract things like moths or nocturnal vectors like animals that might brush up against it and you know disperse the spores but some people did some research where they looked at the number of insects or potential vectors visiting the ghost fungi, and then they looked at other fungi that didn't glow, and it turns out exactly the same number of insects were on the fungi that didn't glow. So we realise it's actually not about that. So I'm sticking with my theory that it helps wombats find a way through the forest at night. Oh, that is amazing. (laughs) It's ethereal. Absolutely ethereal. So what is your favourite fungi? Do you have a a favourite type? Look, I'm down to my short list of 963, <laughs> so it's really say. hard to choose. I mean, it's like choosing between your favourite children cat. I mean, you can't, <laughs> no, do, you that. can't do that. <laughs> oh, look, there's some that I, I love because they just are so endearing and so, you know, endearing and, 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 and what shall I say, um, oh, just because of their absolute sheer beauty. But then there's others that are so bizarre that I can't figure out why you'd want to smell like a rotting, you know, animal on the side of the road <laughs> yeah. or something. So those ones that are really kookily disgusting are quite wonderful as well. But, oh, gee, I think, do you know, I think, to be absolutely honest, it's not particular fungi I'm intrigued with. It's that whole underground network of processes and functionality. That's the bit, to me, that's more intriguing than the manifesting as mushrooms. It's all that stuff going on underneath the soil. That's when fungi, to me, becomes so astonishingly arcane to imagine that network more so than the actual physical mushroom, if you know what I mean. Wow. Are we seeing a new type of fungus because of global warming as well? Look, certainly we fungus seeing, appeared, yeah, out yeah, of nowhere. certainly we think some are getting an advantage from changes in temperature and changes in season lengths. And the thing is, no one's studying this in Australia. No, no one's out there actually looking at this and trying to do any long-term studies to understand it. There's a little bit in Scandinavia, a little bit in the UK, looking at the effects of climate change on fungi. But what we do know, if we look at animals and plants and we're seeing changes there, we can sort of expect a mirroring effect in the fungi as well. So certainly some fungi will get an advantage and it could be those fungi that we don't necessarily want to have an advantage and others will get wiped out because they're just too sensitive to deal with those changes. But we think at the moment that the actual fungus season is getting longer. And I love that because I've got more time to be out there in the forest. <laughs> but from a You're always out there in the forest. <laughs> All the messages we get are that you're out there in the forest. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's where, I, where my office is. But I, but I think, what does that mean? Like, fungi are the great recyclers. They're decomposing organic matter. They're breaking down 
know, recycling all that woody matter in the forest. Can you go through that um, for our audience? What happens, um, I know that um, when we go on forest walks, that certain logs appear quite a lot lighter and that's what you Can you explain that process? Yes, certainly. So we talk about plants as being the producers fungi, uh, animals as being the consumers, but fungi are the great recyclers. And by that I mean they, the mycelium, they they have the chemicals to break down all those recalcitrant compounds, things like what we call lignin or cellulose. They're the compounds that give wood its hardness, its structure. When you pick up a stick and it's hard and you can't push your fingernail into it, that's because of these strong molecules called lignin and cellulose. What fungi do, they secrete enzymes that can actually break apart the lignin and the cellulose and reduce it back to its constituent parts. And that's when you can push your finger into that log. When the log is soft, that's because the fungi have broken down those structural compounds. But if we don't have the fungi, nothing can break that down. And so those chemicals and compounds and nutrients are never released for plants and animals to use them. So the fungi are the great recyclers that break down and they release all those compounds and nutrients. So without that, if we didn't have fungi to do that, we'd, we'd be up to our, you know, kilometres deep in leaf litter and it wouldn't actually break down. So it's the fungi that make those things available, make them what they call biologically available for plants and animals to utilise. So fungi play this amazing role in decomposing or recycling organic matter in the forest. Just absolutely amazing. It's a- absolutely everywhere, aren't they, fungi, yeast, absolutely all around <laughs> us. You're right. Sometimes people say, they send me an email, they say, oh, where do fungi grow? And I say, well, where don't they grow? Have you had a look in your shower bay or your armpits? Or, you know, they, they really have managed to colonise pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. There's very few places where you won't find them. Even places like where you see a, a glacier retreat, for example, in New Zealand or in parts of Europe, on the rock where that glacier retreats, the first thing to colonise that rock will be lichen. And lichen is a form of fungi. And so they're very, sometimes we call them extremophiles or lovers of the extremes because they can colonise habitats where virtually nothing else can withstand those, you know, extremes of cold or temperature or salt or or exposure or whatever. So there's very few habitats that fungi can't colonise. And even our marine and freshwater habitats have fungi in them. There's a lot of medicinal benefits that I know about fungi, but um, has there also been the potential threat that fungi or certain fungi present to human health, um, that they've been implicated in several die-offs of species? uh, Absolutely. Look, we we know about these incredible blights, you know, the potato blight in Ireland, and we know about, you know, the spot on the roses and, you you know, wheat crops and barley crops being wiped out by fungi, and we know about, you know, yeasts and things like candida can cause terrible issues for people but I think often what we do is we scapegoat the fungus as the cause of Mm, the problem mm -hmm. rather than recognising it as a symptom of poor management. So when we create a monoculture which essentially is poor management because monocultures don't exist naturally in nature, there's always diversity, then we create a situation where the fungus goes, oh great, I love grapes or I love potatoes, I'm going to eat them all. You know, like it's not, the fungus isn't the cause of the problem, it's the symptom of poor management. And when we see things like, you might have heard of Phytophthora, which actually technically yeah. isn't a fungus, or Armillaria, or these things, sometimes gardeners write and say, I've got these fungi in my garden, how do I get rid of them? Well, there's, there's no chance, you're never going to get rid of them, there's always going to be fungal spores. But what you can do is increase the resilience of that garden, maximise the diversity of habitats and microclimates to support the other fungi, that keep that problematic one in check. And it's just like with our own bodies. When we get, you know, candida or I was thinking like exactly that, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, we're run down. We haven't been looking after ourselves. And the yeast takes over and goes, great, these are the conditions I love. You've been eating badly. <laughs> You've been doing this and doing that. And they take off. So I think it's often... And I even think, you know, we could look at COVID in the same way. I think it could be seen as a symptom of us not looking after the world. The it, both yeah. at, at so many different levels, environmentally, socially medically, politically, in so many ways that we've been taking too many things for granted. So I think sometimes if we really think about cause and effect or symptom, causes and symptoms, it's another framework to really understand these sorts of problems. So some people have spoken about um, certain species that have the potential to be major biological weapons. Could they be? Look, you know, certainly we know that damage... I mean, 
that microfungi, particularly things like moulds, can do, and you put them in the hands of the mm. wrong people, you know, certainly that can be problematic. But if we didn't provide things like the monocultures <laughs> that those fungi could take advantage of, agree. if yeah. we farmed in a different way, then we could prevent that from happening. So again, I think it comes back to looking at our own responsibility within it. And when, you know, there's certainly there's always, we, we know historically there's been all sorts of problems with fungi taking over and yeah they're incredible opportunists they're the ultimate unruly opportunists as I often call them but I think it's also about well we've created a situation that allows that gives them tremendous advantage yeah we've um, seen a lot of monocrops create creating those types of issues what would you like to see in the agricultural space what would I like to see mm. oh look I'm already seeing it Kat like I'm seeing farmers so often they say you know I'm breaking up this this crop with a row of native plants or I'm just putting in smaller plots and mixing it up and and they're thinking about how to get that structure back in soils and they're reducing their reliance on, you know, antifungals and all these things and actually recognising they don't need antifungals or they don't plant monocultures. And I've already seen these changes and I get so inspired and there's all these sorts of organisations popping up everywhere now, you know, regenerative farmers and different soil-based groups who are looking at trying to get that structure back. And I think... It's happening. I think the best thing we can do is mimic what's there in nature. Of course, we don't have, you know, huge amounts, the huge amounts of brains and things that we need growing naturally in nature. But I think we are trying to mimic nature more in terms of trying to get that architecture back in soil and trying to get the diversity back in the plants that we grow. I mean, I had this farmer recently at a workshop. He was so inspiring. (laughs) And he said that every year, I can't remember what crop he had, but he said he had to bring in X number of bees to pollinate the crop and it cost him a huge amount and huge amount for irrigation, a huge amount for fertiliser and chemical use. And he said all he's done is planted, you know, every, I can't remember what distance apart, but he just plant rows of things like grevilleas and calistamins and other native plants. And he says now that native flies, bees and wasps do 70% of his pollination. There you go, you're listening out thought, there. <laughs> you know, what an amazing story. And he managed to achieve that in about five years. And I thought, this is the stuff that makes me so excited. You know, <laughs> it's, we, we can do it differently. Whether we can scale it up, that's the great challenge. You know, we can do this stuff small scale. And also, of course, we've got the great challenge of, of big fertiliser and big agriculture to contend with. But I think if enough people do it, you know, they say if you get 25% of a society thinking differently, you can tip tip the balance. <laughs> so I, I have great hope, resourceful hope. Fantastic, yeah. What's a common myth about um, fungi that you can well, debunk? Look, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated in these cultural histories and all these myths about fungi and you know, they're often associated with things like the supernatural and witchcraft and all the things that are inexplicable and they're also very strongly mm. associated with women because traditionally women, mm. women actually carry the fungal law, L-O-R-E, and pass it on to their daughters and granddaughters and because when you think about when fungi come up, it's often in autumn and perhaps the men were doing the heavier work of harvesting the fields, the women were gathering the fungi and so they held the knowledge about which ones were toxic which ones are medicinal mm. and of course some women decided to use some of that knowledge against philandering husbands or other undesirables <laughs> and that knowledge gradually got taken away from them and those who had it were called witches so they got burned at the stake and I mm. think it's pretty fascinating but then from that a whole lot of mythology about things like fairy rings i mean in german language they call them hexen rings witches rings and you know they were made by witches or if you stood in one you'd turn into a witch or all these terrible things so this is what is going on with those Oh, look, that's spaceships. That shows you where a spaceship landed on your lawn. And that's the ring Thank around you. the edge of the spaceship. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so what, what you're seeing there, if you can imagine that mycelium, that network of fibres under the soil, what it does, it's feeding. It's feeding under the soil, feeding on nutrients. And as it feeds, it expands and grows and it pops up its mushroom at the edge of that feeding body mm-hmm. in, in a ring form. And each year as the mushroom, the, sorry, the fungus grows underneath the soil, the ring actually gets bigger. So for some reason, its mushrooms come up at the periphery of that actual mycelium. So we, we get that ring or arc of mushrooms. But I, I personally prefer the spaceship theory. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, um... The other topic that uh, I guess is quite controversial at the moment is psychedelics. Do you talk about that at all? Oh, look, it's not my speciality, yeah. but I was so 
me really inspired the other day. I did a panel at a film showing in Melbourne in Carlton a few weeks ago, and there's a wonderful specialist out at Monash University who's doing some fantastic work on mm. a species called psilocybe, which is yeah. the odd ways, as you probably know, it's full of, and it's known as a hallucinogenic <laughs> fungus, or <laughs> keeping in mind that, that, that. Hallucin- <laughs> yeah, it's also, people don't often realise this, a hallucinogen is actually also a neural toxin, it's a mm. nerve toxin, mm-hmm. so something to keep in mind. But he's been looking at the value of psilocybe in teaching, in, in, in um, treating all sorts of terrible mental health yes. challenges, such yes. as you know, post-traumatic stress and depression and end-of-life anxiety and all sorts of things. And several other countries have now actually lifted, a couple of states in America, surprisingly, and I think in the UK, they've actually lifted the sort of limits and ban on these fungi to enable them to be used in this wonderful medicinal way. Yes. I just think it's incredibly exciting. But, um, you know, to see what, what potential they could have. It's amazing. Terence McKenna talks about achieving the same states of um, taking psychedelics as exposing oneself to um, being in a mo- uh, movement and meditative practice. Um, some believe what takes one to learn the experience of 20 years of solitude up high in the mountains can be delivered after one hour of that plant ingestion. Um, and Look, yeah. yeah. There's, there's all sorts of, you know, Wasson was another mm. guy, American, who did a lot of research into psilocybin. And, and unfortunately, oh, we followed Sweet with America and other countries where we were just banged, you know, banned it as a class one drug rather than looking yeah. at other problematic yeah. things. But I I do think it's it's an unknown. And part of, I think, mm. if it comes through fear, we don't know enough about the fungus. So what do we do? We ban it. It's sort of a classic response. But I think, you know, they, they could offer a huge possibility into medicinal values but the thing to keep in mind is that it currently is classified as a class one or class eight drug or whatever so you can get a pretty whacking big you know fire conviction even i think even get a prison sentence for possession of them so it's just something to keep in mind that's right are there any resources or even advice that have really helped you on your journey any resources yeah or even advice that's really helped you yeah, look, I get it all from the forest. <laughs> like for me, every every log of wood on the ground is an amazing archive, an amazing library of species, and a, an amazing you know book of information. If you can read the tracks and traces through the wood of the species that have been there, I mean, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to do a project a few years ago at, at the Australian National University and had that wonderful Fantastic. libraries and resources and people there. But I still think most of what I've learnt, Cat, has been in situ. I mean, I think I'm much yeah, more a, a, field. a, a naturalist in that traditional sense of just the, the observing and listening and watching over extended periods seeing how things change see which mushrooms come back the next year and which ones don't and trying to work out why i do think we've got wonderful written resources and field guides and online resources but i, I think most of what i learned is about using that having that sensorial connection you know learning fungi from their smell and their touch and what they do being being present in the forest with fungi which is why i love running forays rather than doing, you know, things through in in the classroom. I think when we're out in the forest, when you want to learn about something, if you can learn it with all those different senses, it becomes part of memory much more simply than me just lecturing or showing you a picture. If you can hold that mushroom (laughs) and, and, you know, smell it and feel that amazing texture, I think you embed that memory much more readily. Your passion is always infectious and your observation skills have always um, obviously given us um, a whole plethora of incredible photography that we've seen in the fungi world. So you're world-renowned in the photography area too. (laughs) Thank you. It's very kind. What has been your biggest accomplishment? in a career thus far? Oh, wow. Gee, I've, I've never really thought of it in that <laughs> sense. To me, it's sort of an, un- an ongoing thing. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I put out a book a couple of years ago and that was a lovely thing to see it out, but it was also almost an anticlimax and a terrible thing to think that the project had ended. I didn't have an excuse to, <laughs> to be working on that project anymore because that was another sort of five or six year project. But I, I guess, yeah, these end products of, of books or things, it's, that, that isn't so much the accomplishment. For me, they come in small bites. When someone sends me an email or rings me up after a workshop and says, from today's experience, I can never think of the forest in the same way again. No, that, you that can't. That makes my heart sing. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's stuff. 
It's not producing the book. It's when you see someone's way of thinking about nature or way of understanding or appreciating or regarding nature. When one person says that to me, that, that's everything. And then if you can achieve that again in another foray, if someone else thinks like that, I think they're the things to me that are those are cumulative experiences rather than one sort of end product of something that to me are the greatest achievements. When someone thinks differently mm-hmm. and more, I guess... Um, What's the word? Not compassionately, but more, I guess, empathic. Oh, what's the word? It has more empathy for the natural environment and recognises their dependence on it. To me, that that's really exciting. That's what gets me going. So your uh, passion, obviously, is very infectious. So when people come for a walk with me, they'll know why it takes me five minutes to walk a metre. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing we don't get fit on forays, do we? <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So how easy oh, is it for you to get grants? To get grants? Mm, to do your research. Oh, on look, fungi. I very rarely rely on grants. I sort of take a different approach. I mean, I one thing that's really sort of hard now about academia that everything's you know driven mm. by having to spend time right. yeah. pushing paper and it drives me mental. I sort of find if I go out in the forest and I do something, I come up with an idea to whether it's a field guide or whether it's to run a workshop or whatever it is, I always think if that's good enough, if that idea is good enough and worthy, the money will come. <laughs> that's yes, been definitely. the approach I've always taken. It doesn't always come, but very often when I've had an idea, I just go with it. And, and usually someone says, well, can you run that workshop with our group or can you come and develop a field guide or can you come and talk about this? And So I very, very seldom actually apply for grants. I just usually when I have an idea, I, I try and make it good enough that it actually somehow the money miraculously turns up. Yeah, <laughs> I've been lucky so far. Yeah. So what unique skills do you have to have um, that's helped you become so successful in Look, your field? I think it's, it's about... I think it's about keen observation and and just watching and observing and trying to interpret those things that you see. I think it's about going the long term. It's the long term haul. Like I think today, often we have a shorter attention span for things and expect to learn things quickly. I mean, sometimes people say, "Oh, can you give me?" A, I sometimes get an email that you know says something like, "I'm taking the kids out in the forest tomorrow. Can you give me a rundown of the toxic and edible fungi?" <laughs> It's so like, well, um, you know, it's like I couldn't tell you about the whole animal kingdom from, you know, mm. deep, deep um, water fish through to butterflies through to African elephants in a day either. Like we're talking about a whole kingdom of organisms. That's right. it's, not, it's not a quick thing. Right. It's a lifetime to commitment of learning. And I feel like I've hardly scraped the surface of what's out there. But I think it's about, yeah, I think it's patience. I think it's keen observation. And I think it's about following your passion. I think that's the... Bottom line, Kat, I think when you're really excited and passionate about something, when you care about something, then there's, there's no discipline required. No. <laughs> you're, you're just driven to be there. And I think that's often what I say to students, like work at it. Work out what it is that gets your blood going. That's the thing you've got to focus your energy on because if you don't care about it, you're never going to be committed to it. You're never going to be there with your whole heart. You're never going to be driven. It's just going to be a labour. It's going to be a task rather than a, a pleasure to be doing that passion, thing. Yeah. 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 What do you wish you had known when you first started out on this pathway? Wow. Oh, wow, gee, that's a great question. I think for me it's always about not knowing what I'm going to find out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's about the uncertainty. I know today we often talk about job security and having certainty, but I, I love not knowing where I'm going to be next week <laughs> at all. I mean, I don't like it now that I'm limited as we all are because of the current situation, but I love not knowing who I'll be talking to in a year's time or what forest or what fungi I'll be finding. I think it's that's what to me what's exciting. It's actually the unknown and not knowing what I'm going to find out and which tangent I'll be off on and which people, whether it'll be a farmer or a ranger or an Indigenous person. I sort of love that idea of not knowing what's around the corner. That, to me, that's really exciting, that uncertainty and the oh. serendipity that comes from that. I can just see you there. So where do you <laughs> see yourself in five years' time? Back in the forest. <laughs> In the field, obviously, yeah, back in the yeah. field. I'll be, I'll be there in the yacht ways. Don't you worry. You can't get rid of me that easily. <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah. So if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Oh, well, I guess it's about, I wish I could have a bit more of a mycelial way of understanding the world in, in terms of like being a little bit more able to connect and I think and you have, have that. You definitely <laughs> have that. Oh, thank you, Kat. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure about superpowers. I think... Um, 
Oh, that's a great question. I think it's just, I just hope that I can continue to do this and I hope that the current situation soon resolves and, you know, we can perhaps, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I think I hope we can learn a bit from this and that real definitely. opportunities and possibilities for change will arise. And I hope part of that is that we have a little bit more recognition that everything we do to the natural environment, we're doing to ourselves. That's and that right. we have a little bit more empathy. That's fantastic. I really like that. Um, if you could switch lives with someone or even a mushroom for the day, who, who would you choose? <laughs> well, there can only be one person. That's got to be Sir David, doesn't it? I mean, what a life he's had. Oh, fantastic. I mean, you know, since I was seven, I think he was my, my superhero. And I just Me think too. He probably yeah. Yeah, influenced people. and Influenced mental, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, there's something he said, Kat, that really excited me. On his 90th birthday, I think it's amazing, it was. amazing, yeah. Obama. That was last year, wasn't it? Was that last year? No, not year before. Yeah, no, it was okay. More of that because it was when Obama was still in power, and, and Obama invited him to the White House, and Obama was concerned about the current state of the environment and climate change and all of the issues within that. And he said to David Attenborough, he said, "How how do we get people interested in the natural world?" And Attenborough had a really great response. Mm. He said, "Well, the question should be, why did we lose interest?" He says, "Every child is inherently." passionate about nature, put any child down on the ground and they see the snail or the mushroom or the beetle or whatever. So the question should be, how did we lose yeah. it? You know, he turned it around and I, and I loved that. He said, "Why? where is it? Where's the point that we, we lose interest in it? And I think that's the more pertinent question. Yes, I grew up on a uh, assortment of uh, David Edinburgh. So uh, just absolutely. <laughs> um, now, if you were a type of food, what type of food would you be? Oh, goodness me, you have the most bizarre questions. They just pop yeah, into my head. Or don't well, hopefully one that wouldn't get eaten because I want to stay here a while, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you sort of think you'd have to be something delicious, but I think I'd like to be something highly toxic so that I wouldn't get eaten. So, you know, because I mean, then I'd be gone. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> so what's your favourite memory um, being out in the field? Because you obviously enjoy yourself each time you're there. It, it's obvious yeah. a smile on your face that, you know, you've got this certain glow about you and you just have this passion that infect everyone around you. So, <laughs> yeah, what's the favourite memory that related to what you do? Seeing, I mean, it's quite often it's seeing something I haven't seen before, but that's usually every time I'm out in the forest I see something you've never seen before. But also it's often about the encounters I have with Homo sapiens. So often it's seeing people doing something fascinating <laughs> in the forest. And I think of a, an experience with a guy called Terezio Valsesio, this Italian... That's definitely overseas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he was in a place called Macalania Borca in the Piemont region of northern yeah, Italy. Yeah. And I just came across him serendipitously. He was standing at this fountain in a tiny village washing his chanterelles. And, you know, I've got about four words of Italian and he had about three of English. It didn't matter. We managed did you communicate? to communicate. That's fantastic. How did well, you communicate? Well, we both kept picking, picking up the chanterelle and gesticulating and gesturing with it, and we got it. We got the most important thing That's is that we both love chanterelles. And so those things are, are so dear to me, those you know, serendipitous experiences of meeting people out there with a shared passion. So I think it's both uh, discovering new things, but also it's about going back to familiar places. I mean, every time I walk up the Barham River or every time I go into... Mm you know, the beach forest again and see those magnificent nothophagus, it's coming back to old friends, you know, to come back to trees that I've known for 20 or 30 years and seeing those trees still there and the fungi still How there. Beautiful. That familiarity is a beautiful thing as well. And the tragedy of coming back and they're gone for whatever reason, mm. whether it's fire or logging or whatever. So those experiences are really dear as well. So what's coming up for you in the near future? There seems to be um, a few book um, entrails in the, in the pipeline. Yeah, so certainly, yeah, this next book, this will be off. That's been a five-year project, so that's off next week to the publisher. The publisher next will take... Next week, you know, can't wait for yeah, that. Yeah, it'll probably be early 2021 when they put that one out. But certainly continuing what I'm doing, getting more involved in local conservation projects. I think one thing that really greatly concerns me about the COVID situation is that fungi or conservation more generally and climate change issues are going to get shunted down the agenda. We're going to lose some of that impetus that we had mm -hmm. to look at local conservation issues. So my drive towards that will be stronger and harder and with more conviction. So I think now, you know, so much of our attention and certainly money and everything, of course, and it has to go into the current situation, but I still want to try and keep that, you know, focus on conservation as well when we can actually all get back out there again. So that's certainly a big part of the future is trying to reignite that 
that inspiration and, and drive towards looking after not just the forest but all yeah, of the wonderful different environments in the in the Otways. Yeah. What What's the most common people uh, reason for people failing or giving up? Do you think on those reasons? Look, I think with conservation, so much of Australian conservation is driven by volunteer effort, and I mm. think we don't see it as worthy of paying people, which is terrible. That you know, we get fed the crumbs to look after things, mm. and I think yeah. you know we burn out. This country runs on volunteer effort. We've seen it with the fires recently, and I think that's a really big part is it's simply burnout. But I also think we often think that conservation is run on knowledge alone, you know, about learning more about what's out there and certainly we have to have inventories of species we have to know what's there but I think the really key crucial element is care you know you can have all the knowledge in the world but if people don't care there's no conservation and I think that care comes from being in situ I mean if, if someone from council says oh can you come in and tell me about this local you know issue I say no I can't come into your office can you come out to the forest and I can put that you know I can put that little orchid or that little tiny endangered mammal in your hand you know and then you see that person's whole approach change there's no point me going into an office everything i can tell that person they can google it's all there all that information's online no information that i can give them can change their mind all i can do is appeal to their heart get them to care and i can't do that in their office i've got to get them out in the forest so that's sort of my line is i think we have to increase the care well of course we still need to know more but all the knowledge in the world will do nothing unless people are engaged emotionally. Absolutely beautiful. How can <laughs> listeners get in touch um, with or support you? Oh, look, I, I would love them. I and mean, unfortunately, I had about half a dozen different forays running from Apollo Bay yes, and Forest. I am so gone, disappointed. I was so looking forward to those. Yeah, look, it's a great shame. But everyone's, everyone's in the same situation. We are going to postpone those to next year. So mm-hmm. if you have enrolled... We'd love you to possibly consider, I mean, just, you've got the option of a full refund or you might like to keep your enrolment there and we're going to get a new dates for those workshops in Autumn 221. Or, in the meanwhile, what I'm suggesting, if you if put that money aside to, to run, to come to a workshop, keep it aside, buy my book. <laughs> you, can, you can learn about fungi. You've got my other the book. The Allure Fungi, fungi yeah. Because the publisher has very kindly said, anyone who is coming to workshop, or even if you're thinking about maybe coming, they're offering you a 20% discount That's and free postage on the book. So, oh, so looking forward like to, to that. To so read about it. So forward to that. And uh, so many uh, people were disheartened when we had to cancel those workshops, unfortunately. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's great to know that we'll be... Uh, Postponing them till next year. That's fantastic I've news. I've that flyer for the discount through to Kevin, through to Southern Otways Lancaster. So mm-hmm. certainly, by all means, if you'd like to read a little bit more. But get out in the forest when you can still get out your I do. The great thing is you I can do. go out yeah. in the forest and, yeah, not be exposing anyone or be, being at any risk if you're out there on your own in the forest. But, yes, yeah, certainly it's very kind of you to ask that, Tad, and um, hopefully people will come back next autumn to the workshops and if you're interested in reading that fungi in the interim. But I'd love to hear from people too. You've got a fungus that you've taken a photo of. Maybe I can help you learn about that fungus or put a name on it or whatever. Be in contact and we'll always So where can they contact me. you? So directly through my website, through my email address, which I can give to you. It's a bit of a long name. It's Alison at AlisonPulio.com. I can spell that for you. It's A-L-I-S-O-N at, then my name again, A-L-I-S-O-N, then my surname, P-O-U-L-I-O-T.com. I'm always happy to hear from people. You are, actually. You're just a total jewel to this world, just full of... You're a library of information and knowledge about fungi. I absolutely learn something every time I talk to you. It's absolutely wonderful. And just your passion and just... um, is just amazing. It's so infectious. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. I can't believe that um, it's been an hour. It feels like five minutes every time that we wow. talk to you. It really no does. Idea. It's been fantastic to talk to you too, Kat. And I really appreciate your enthusiasm and interest and hopefully we'll, we'll cross paths again soon. It'll be fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Thanks, Alison. Kat. Have a great Take care. evening. Speak to you soon. Bye for now. And that was Alison Palloon. You're listening to The Wellness Couch on 3ABR 87.6 FM. And we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye.